so we're going to intersperse reading and commentary as we go. But let, let's let's um, let's look at this. Isaiah 56. Now, scholars, when they look at the book of Isaiah, have decided that there's three parts of it. There's chapter one to thirty. The different scholars break it up, but mainly people say it's chapter one to thirty-nine, and then chapter forty to fifty-five, and then chapter fifty-six to sixty-six. So we're into the last section of a big book. Jeremiah's got fewer chapters but more words. Isaiah has the most chapters of any Old Testament book or any Bible book other than the Psalms, but it's a big and a complex book. Uh, I was talking to Tom Guilford during the week about his sermon last week and and he said he, he finds Isaiah challenging. Well, I'm glad to hear that Tom does because I do too. Right? It's a difficult book. Um, but Isaiah 56 verse 1, have a look at it there. So this is the start of this third section. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Notice twice there we hear about righteousness. What's righteousness? It's an important Bible word. Um, Righteousness means to be right through and through. Right? It's very closely related to justice. So righteousness is a character quality of God that describes who he is and it's the essential character that people who want to live with God must have if they're to live with him because God's perfection reacts against unrighteousness. Now, can you see the problem that we've got there? I don't know about you, but I am not righteous in myself. In fact, I know that about you too. I just didn't want to accuse you in public, right? Right? I am not righteous in myself, and nor are you, Colin. What are you going? <laughs> no, I have to keep some of them. To, but look, some of you know me well enough to know that it's. You know, I mean, you're all good at spotting speak, uh, preachers' imperfections. Like, you don't need me to tell you that I'm imperfect, because you know it. You've seen it, right? Um, But the problem with my imperfections is that some of them I'm not that unhappy about. And that's the same with you, right? And so sometimes you'll get in a conflict with someone, you'll say, well, that's how I am. You'll have to take me as you find me, right? Right? And and that's how people operate. And, And that's why relationships fall apart. Because people go, well, this is who I am. Right? And we cling to the things that other people are finding very difficult to put up with. And, um, but unrighteousness is a problem that we have to reckon with because God is righteous. He is right through and through. He always does what's right. He always does what's just. And God's holiness reacts against our impurity. And so this problem here, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation come and my righteousness be revealed... That's the idea that drives the last 10 chapter, or 11 chapters of Isaiah, 56 to 66, this idea of God's righteousness. And righteousness is something that is part of God's character. It's required of God's people, but it's something that God will reveal. Now, Martin Luther uh, was one of the great architects of the Protestant Reformation, and he hated the idea of God's righteousness. He was a Catholic monk who was doing everything. He was a little bit like what Terry described. He he felt this burden of guilt and shame and he wanted to be rid of it and he didn't know how. So he would sleep with just a sheet over him. He would sleep on straw ticking on on a stone floor and he would purposely 
deprive himself of warmth. He would eat limited meals. He would punish himself physically. He would crawl backwards upstairs. He did everything he could to sort of deprive himself and punish himself because he thought, surely if I do these things, God will be pleased. He'll see how sorry I am for the things I do. But he couldn't get peace. And he was studying Romans and he read those words that I read at the beginning, that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. And this is what he said. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners as if it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by the law without having God add pain by the gospel, threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. So Luther had this idea that the gospel reveals God's righteousness and it just makes the rest of us feel like worms, hopeless. And he hated God for it. And then he discovered the discovery that launched the Reformation. The righteousness that's being spoken of in Romans chapter 1 is the righteousness that God credits to people who put their faith in Jesus. It's like having a shop where you've got an account and you come in and you say, how much is on my bill? Oh, everything you need to have at the shop today is paid for. God credits Jesus' righteousness to people like us when we come by faith to him and Luther felt the burden lift off his shoulders. What we can't do for ourselves, God does for us. And that's the miracle and the wonder of the gospel. God makes us fit to live in his presence. But we get Isaiah as an important means of understanding the nature of God's righteousness and the nature of the righteousness that he requires. Now, the problem that Isaiah was addressing was that God's people were anything but righteous and they loved it that way. So he'd he'd raised up Israel to be his light to the nations. He had promised the descendants of Abraham that they would bring his blessing to the world. And yet, they were living so sinfully and so he threatened them with exile in Babylon. And Isaiah is writing before the exile and looking ahead to what they'll suffer in exile. But he says, God's going to bring you back to Jerusalem again. But when Isaiah was writing Jerusalem, he says in chapter 1 was a sinful nation. And he says, they despised the Holy One of Israel. He said, Jerusalem's faithfulness was the faithfulness of a prostitute. You wouldn't expect to find words like that in the Bible, would you? Well, they are. Because God really wants to drive the message home. Now we saw all this a couple of years ago when we started looking at Isaiah, but the faithfulness of God's people in Jerusalem, the ones who'd been rescued and and, and planted in that city, which is supposed to be where God lives with his people, the faithfulness, he says, can only be described as being like a whore. And so Isaiah's job was to speak to those people and to draw them back to the law that was supposed to keep them on track. And he knew that most people would disregard his teaching. And so the book of Isaiah goes between threat of judgment and the promise of salvation all the way through. But towards the end, we're starting to see more glimmers of hope and more of the, of the salvation. So Isaiah aims, the whole book aims to see the restoration of God's people and the transformation of the people that live in Jerusalem. Uh, and we see that restoration is going to be righteousness is going to be restored through repentance but we also see that those who continue to rebel against God are going to be broken in judgment and so we get those two things salvation but judgment 
and the salvation is for those who humble themselves and repent and the judgment is for those who, who continue to harden themselves. So the question then is how will Yahweh's righteousness be revealed? So flick across to Isaiah 59. Have you heard the saying, if you want something done, do it yourself? God works righteousness. So Isaiah 59. So verse 15 to 17. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. So in other words, if you try to do the right thing, you're going to cop it in the neck because there's other people that don't want you to live God's way. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So the picture there is of Yahweh, Israel's God and Lord, becoming a warrior to fight for what is righteous. And he's going to establish the righteousness of Zion. But then we come to verse 20. And, this is important new information, and a redeemer will come to Zion. Now Zion's the mountain that Jerusalem was built on. So when you read Isaiah, Jerusalem and Zion are interchangeable words and they mean the mountain that God lives on because that's where the temple was. But it's another way of saying God's people. Because God's people live where God lives, on Mount Zion. A redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, as for me this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of your, your, the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Now, there's some very interesting thing going, going on there. Um, as verse 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them. Now, them is plural, means lots of people. So Yahweh is going to make a new covenant with his people, a new agreement, a new arrangement for how they're going to conduct themselves with each other. This is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you, and that you is singular. So this passage here is introducing us to a person who is going to do the work of God to establish his people as righteous. So look at the fruit of what happens because of this person. This is the Redeemer who comes to Zion. The words that Yahweh puts in his mouth won't depart from his mouth and they won't depart from the mouth of his offspring and their offspring. So in other words... There's going to be generations of people who do what God says because of the work of this redeemer. Now, a redeemer is a person who pays the price for the release of someone from debt or from slavery. And so a redeemer is going to come to Zion, to the place where God lives, and he is going to establish God's truth and his righteousness. Now, we should all be saying, well, who will this be? And of course, we know who it is, don't we? It's Jesus. But they didn't know that. So what we've got to do when we read Isaiah is to work out why is that Jesus? Why when Jesus comes do people go, hmm, that's him? Because at the time that Isaiah wrote, all they knew was that Yahweh was promising to send a redeemer. So we need to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And that's where we get to chapter 60. So flick on to chapter 60, which Tom preached last week, verses 1 to 3. 
tell us that because of this redeemer the nations are going to see God's glory in Zion the nations up until now have been opposed to God's people and they have oppressed them but there's going to come a day when the nations not only see God's glory amongst his people but they're going to be drawn to it verses 4 to 16 tells us that Zion will one day prosper it's going to be secure and its welfare will be established and the nations will find that their security is tied up with attaching themselves to Zion. So what is the security for non-Jewish people? It's to attach themselves to God's people. That's where they'll find safety, from God's wrath. And so God's people are going to be established in righteousness and security forever. And so... um, Hang on. Oh, yeah. Verse 21 of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 60. Your people shall be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. So God will be glorified. God will be made to look beautiful through his people. And his people will be made righteous and they'll possess the land forever. And they're going to be like a garden that will be planted and won't ever fail. How many gardeners have we got here? Have you ever lost a plant that you cared about? Right? Of course you have. That's what happens with gardens, right? I raised up Physophilia trees from seed and rabbits ate them, right? God is going to plant a garden and the garden is going to be his people and that garden will never die. That's the image that we're getting there. So verse 22, I am the Lord, in its time I will hasten it. In its time. So here's another lesson, friends. The work that God wants to do will be done in his time. We pray, but we have to leave the timing to him. And so now we get to Isaiah 61, and we're going to read more about this anointed one, about this redeemer who is coming to Zion. So let's work our way through the first six verses. The anointed redeemer delivers comfort and freedom for God's people. So verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Right Now that word anointing means to have oil poured on you and it was done to show that a person had been set apart for a special job for God. So priests were anointed and kings were anointed and there was a ceremony where oil was poured on them to show this person is set aside for a special purpose for God. And so we've got this one who's coming who we believe is the one who was introduced back in chapter 59, the Redeemer coming to Zion. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He's speaking. These are the words of this redeemer because the Lord has anointed me. And he's anointed me, why? To bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So there's seven things that this anointed redeemer is going to accomplish on God's behalf. He's going to tell the poor, now poor there means the afflicted ones, the the pious, humble ones who suffer just because they want to live God's way. That's the poor that he's speaking about here. People who want to live for God but who find that because of that they're suffering. People like the young man we're hearing about in Niger right that the anointed redeemer has good news for them he's going to bind up the brokenhearted 
You don't need to put your hand up and identify yourself, but I reckon there's people here who know what it means to be broken-hearted. This Redeemer has good news for you. He's going to bind up those wounds that otherwise just wouldn't, would stay un, uncured. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, that doesn't mean when this Redeemer comes, there's not going to be any prisons anymore. What it means is people who have been held captive by the things that hold them back from being the righteous people that God wants them to be. So he goes on with that again, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now notice this, he's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favour. Now that the idea there, you need to look back to Leviticus 25, to the year of Jubilee. Do you know about the year of Jubilee? If you read the law, every 50 years, people who had sold their land to pay debts would be given their land back. If you were so poor that you had to put yourself as a servant for someone else, you were set free. In the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, all debts had to be cancelled. That's what God said to his people. And so that's a reference back to that. This Redeemer is going to bring a year when debts are forgiven and prisoners are set free and slaves are set free as well. Does that sound good? Would, would you like to be part of that? Right? But then... The year of the Lord's favour is contrasted with the day of his vengeance. Notice year and day. We're meant to notice these details in poetry. So the year of the Lord's favour compared to the day of his vengeance. That tells us a couple of things. God's favour is much bigger than his vengeance. His vengeance will be done with very quickly, just a day. But the year of God's favour is a way of saying this is going to go on for a long time. And this is going to be accomplished by this Redeemer who comes to Zion. So verse 3, we move on to other things that this Redeemer is going to accomplish. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now I was talking to Peter during the week and we were talking about that song that we sang before. He said, we haven't sung it for years and I don't think I'm telling, well, probably am telling secrets, but Peter said, I've never really got what it meant. Well, here it is. This is the passage it comes from. The oil of the beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Where would you normally find ashes in the Old Testament? What do we do with ashes? That's mourning. That's what you put on your head when you're going to a funeral. right? Not, we don't seem to do it anymore, but that's what they used to do. They would daub themselves with ashes, the, the, the refuse from a fire, and that was a symbol that they were in sorrow and mourning. Now, when would you put on a beautiful headdress? Well, that sounds like a wedding. So this Redeemer is going to take people who feel like they've been in a funeral all these years, and he's going to say, you're going to feel more like you're going to a wedding. Which would you rather go to? That's what this Redeemer is going to do. He's going to change the way that people dispose themselves. They're going to feel like they've been caught up and bound up in mourning and he's going to turn that mourning to joy and gladness. The difference between a funeral and a wedding. That's a transformation. And not only that, this change is going to be permanent. The joy of gladness, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. Have you seen an oak tree lately? They look pretty sturdy, don't they? Right? They look pretty sturdy. They're big, strong trees. These are going to be the planting of the Lord. This is this garden imagery again. Now, back in chapter 1 of Isaiah, 
we were told that there were oak trees that people were worshipping under and they were associated with idolatry. And so God says, your oak trees are going to die. But the trees that God's creating here, and it's an image for his people, these are trees that are so well planted that they will not die. They're going to thrive and prosper forever. The, the, and, and the feature of these oak trees, which is people, is righteousness. So God says, I'm going to put on my belt. I'm going to establish these righteous people. Next thing we hear, he's going to send a redeemer who's going to establish God's people in righteousness. You're starting to see how this sounds like Jesus? Sent by God to give people things that they couldn't get for themselves. And so these people are going to be firmly established in this righteousness like a plant that will never wither and die. And it's all so that God can be glorified. Now we bandy around terms like glory. But glory has to do with magnificence, with beauty, with heaviness, with awesomeness. And God's people and the way that they live is going to bring God glory. People are going to think well of God because of the way his people live. Are we up to it? That that should be our aim. In the book of Titus, we read that we're supposed to adorn the doctrine. Christians are supposed to make following Jesus look beautiful. We're supposed to. And it starts in churches. But that's our job. We want God to look good. And people will often judge God by us. So we need to be careful how we live. But he gives us the spirit to make it possible. Verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, foreigners shall be your ploughmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of your God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory you shall boast. So this is directed to the people who were going to come back from exile in Babylon and Jerusalem would be a ruin. And we read in later parts of the Old Testament their first job was to rebuild the walls. And so this was first accomplished by God's people in ancient times, but it's a description of what we should be doing now. Jerusalem for us is our church. We're the holy place. Not the building, but us. And so this is a description of church building. When you operate with the gifts that the Spirit has given you, you're re- rebuilding the walls, restoring the ruins. That's what you're doing. Because where does God live now apart from heaven? In here and in here. We're rebuilding the ruins when we do the things that build up the people of God. Um, and notice that the nations there, the nations that had previously oppressed God's people are going to be drawn to them and God gives them a bit of a hint of how things are going to be. He says, they're going to serve you. You used to, you used to serve them. You used to be slaves to the nations. But these, So in other words, the nations are going to be drawn in and God's saying, I'm going to look after you people. I'm going to look after my people. So verses 7 to 9. The anointed redeemer reverses shame and dishonour. As though we haven't already seen that, we're going to get it some more. This time I think it's God speaking. We don't have. It's not like a play script where you have a name in the side that says who's speaking but I think it's safe to conclude that this is the voice of God himself and so he's talking about the results of the redeemer's work and so instead of your shame there shall be a double portion 
instead of dishonour, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Now, if you cast your mind back to Isaiah chapter 40, in verse 2, we're told that the people are going to be paid back twice for their sins. But now we read that Yahweh is going to give them a double portion of blessing. And this is all going to come as the result of this Redeemer. So verse 8, I the Lord love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. Now that's a description of the conditions that prevailed in Jerusalem when Isaiah was writing. Because the princes were companions of thieves. Everyone loved to bribe, we read in chapter 1. I the Lord love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. Therefore, I will faithfully give them their recompense. Now, what that means is God is going to give to his people what they deserve because they've remained faithful. Do you ever find it difficult to be a Christian? Have you ever been ridiculed for being a Christian? Have you ever lost friends for being a Christian? Have you ever lost anything for being a Christian? If you have, God knows and he will reward you. That's what that means. I will faithfully give them their recompense. So don't give up when the going's tough, because that's a test to see whether you do love God. So he goes on, I will, this is in verse 8, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Now we've already seen that. That's already been hinted at earlier in the reading. Verse 9, their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. Now that word offspring is really important in the Bible. Literally, the word is seed. And so we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman is going to bruise the serpent's head. But Abraham in Genesis 12 is promised seed, a man who hasn't got any children, and he's promised many, many descendants. And the word that he's told is you are, the seed of Abraham is going to turn into a very, very big family. So whenever we read about offspring or seed, we've got to cast our mind back to the promises that God made Abraham. And Abraham was promised that through him and his offspring, the whole world will be blessed. And so what that's promising there is the contempt and the disdain that the nations have had for God's people is going to be reversed. And they're going to get a new reputation, not of shame, but of honour. Is it worth staying true to God? You won't find better than that anywhere. So stay with Jesus, stay with God, because the things that cause you grief will one day be turned on their head and repaid in double. And so we get to verses 10 to 11. And so I think this is the Redeemer speaking again, and I think his words go on into chapter 62. Now, different scholars disagree on this, but this is the way I read it, and I think the, the words that are spoken in chapter 62 confirm it. So I think now that Yahweh's spoken, the Redeemer returns, and he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. So because of what he's heard God saying and because of the commissioning that God's given him and because he's so sure that when he works for God, it's going to accomplish the things that God's purposed. He's rejoicing. Do you ever rejoice in God? We've, we've heard some rejoicing this morning, and that's good. Does God ever give you good things? Is it okay to rejoice? 
or should Christians be dour? I'm rejoicing. Is that how it should be? I mean, you, you can get happy when your football team wins and that lasts about three and a half hours, right? Sometimes three. Do you ever rejoice in what God's done for you? Because if you haven't seen something of what God's doing here, you haven't been paying attention. But this Redeemer rejoices that God is going to use him to produce wonderful results. This Redeemer says, God has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That sounds a lot like the clothes that God's put on, except God's doing it as a warrior. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And here we get back to the garden imagery again. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. So this Redeemer is going to be given the tools to establish the righteousness amongst God's people that they can't establish on their own. Right. And they're going to be established as permanently as a garden that won't die. Now, flip over in your Bible to Luke chapter 4 as we finish. If you've been reading your Bible for a while, you'll realise that these words became the foundation for Jesus' ministry. So in Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins his public ministry in Nazareth. So Luke chapter 4 at verse 16. And we read there that Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was his custom he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So God says in its time I will establish it and this is that time. Today you've heard these words fulfilled. So Jesus is saying, I'm the one that you've read about in Isaiah. Now that's a bold claim, isn't it? That's a massive claim. Because when you put all the things that are said about this character in Isaiah, in chapter 11 we read that he's a descendant of David who's been equipped with the spirit of the Lord. In chapter 42 we read about the servant who's been given the spirit. The spirit has been put upon him to bring justice to the nations. And then later on in chapter 53 we read about that servant who gives his life as a ransom for many. They're all the same person. God is promising a king better than David. But that king is going to be a servant who pays for the sins of God's people by laying his own life down. And now we read that this one is going to be a redeemer who establishes righteousness. They're all the same person. And when Jesus stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth that day and says, you've heard these words fulfilled, they all knew what he was saying was, I am the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. But more than that, he's literally, virtually saying, I'm God. Now, either that's true or it's not. You need to make your mind up. I think it's true. I was talking to someone at university years ago when I went there. I was telling 
about Jesus and the things she said. Then he, and she swore and said, well, he's a big head. I thought, oh, I've never heard anybody talk like that about Jesus. But if, it's, if this is not true, then he is. But this is true. And because it's true, he can take you and your mourning and turn it into joy. Now, we still experience plenty of mourning here, don't we? Right? The world is not free of sadness. The world is not free of the things that feel like it's binding us up. The world is not free of sorrow and disappointment, sometimes shattering disappointment. And I know for a fact that there's people in here who know what I'm talking about. But the miracle, one of the miracles of the gospel is that it transforms our outlook on life to the point where even in the midst of that sorrow and mourning, we can experience the kind of joy that's spoken of here. And that's just a down payment. Because there's going to come a day when God calls time and the day of vengeance will come, but the day of that double recompense will outlast it. The day of vengeance is for only for those people who have decided that they can live without God. But the year of favour is going to be eternal. And the people who have trusted God through his anointed Redeemer are going to live with him as oaks of righteousness an eternal garden forever. And friends, it doesn't get better than that. So hold on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. We pray that you would help us to read Isaiah and believe these things that we read. We thank you for Jesus, the King in the line of David, the suffering servant who paid for our sins with his blood. But we, we acknowledge him today as the, uh, the Redeemer who will come and establish your people as people of joy and gladness as oaks of righteousness Uh, father please help us to hold on to these promises to live in the light of them and to live joyfully because of them we pray all these things in jesus name amen